Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yevamot, daf Chaf Gimel, page 23. Well, as uh, Ann and I discussed while we were prepping, we are really in the thick of Yevamot. I guess I'm just saying this is a little bit of a pep talk. I know this has been a difficult Masachet, um, but we're here with you. We hope that our daily podcast is helping you get through it as well. Um, and, you know, let us know, post on our Facebook page if there's any tips or anything that have been helping you to get through this Masachet that you want to share with your other learners. Um, you know, we know that this has been a challenge. Uh, before And Anna, likewise, you're... likewise, I would say, if you have any questions that you feel we can help you by answering, you know, whether directly or, you know, and then in a new, soon episode to, to figure out that we all need to figure out, I feel like Yavamot is a challenge by virtue of the very material that is there it's not it's just it's not just the language it's not just the era you know there's a lot here that's tricky yeah that is for sure so i'm going to move on to a section here where um the gemara basically made this conclusion that according to rabbi yossi uh this you know uh ben rabbi yehuda that when the pasuk talks about uh you know sort of somebody being um uh you know uh born outside right that that included the daughter of a woman who is prohibited under the penalty of karate uh in the prohibition of you know uh of, of your sister while your father's wife's daughter excludes the daughter of a uh of a of a slave woman of a shivcha or uh, a woman who uh is an idolatress so after they've had this discussion about the opinion of Rabbi Yossi, uh, ben Rabbi Yehuda, um, the Gemara now sort of wants to go back to the rabbi's opinion. And again, this is, I'm just sort of setting this up. This is in the section that I really want to focus on, but I wasn't quite sure where to get started here. The Rabbanan and the rabbis, right, who basically use this pasuk talking about your father's wife's daughter to learn from here that anybody who uh, you know, has a relationship with his father's daughter from a, from a from a good kedushin, from a good marriage, right? From a from a uh, actual marriage, um, is actually uh, you know um, is chayav for for two for two transgressions. This was talked about before. I'm not going to get into the details now. So the question on the rabbis is: Okay, where do they get this halacha? Like, where do they learn right uh, that the Torah also wants to exclude? Uh, the daughter of a uh, of a uh, you know uh, of a shivcha of a Canaanite slave woman, or of an idolatress from the prohibition of your of your sister, and so the Gemara answers So they take it from uh, this pasuk here from Shmot chapter twenty one verse four. This pasuk is talking about that the child of a Canaanite slave woman basically inherits. Um, uh, their mother's personal status. So again, here we see another uh, sort of example of matrilineal descent, right? That a Canaanite slave is basically just going to be cons- the child of a Canaanite shivcha, right? Of a Canaanite slave is just basically going to be considered part of the, you know, the lineage of the of the shivcha, but is not going to be, we're not going to recognize sort of the Jewish uh, lineage um, that's there. And what that means is, is that there's sort of no, sibling relationship, similar to what we talked about yesterday with the, with the Geirim, right? There's no sibling relationship between the daughter or uh, of a shivcha, right? And her Jewish father's son. Um, and so the son is basically not liable under your sister, right? If he were to have relations with that, 
uh, daughter, like on a very technical level. Okay, so that's really what they're talking about here. So they basically get it from a different, uh, you know, so, so that's sort of the pasuk uh, where, where they're going to get that sort of this daughter of the shifcha is actually uh, is actually excluded. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there, but that's not where I want to go there. Um, and so the, then the Gemara says, for Rabbi Yossi, for Rabbi Huda, right? Where does he get this from? Chad b'shivcha, right? So one verse, right? He needs one verse to talk about the case of the shivcha. And he needs one verse to talk about the case of the idolaters. And why is that? And he needs both of these verses, right? So this is, what we're basically saying is, is that according to Rabbi Yossi's view, right, your father's wife's daughter um, only would, you know, can exclude one of them, but it can't exclude both of these categories. So he basically needs two psukim to get to both of these categories, right? And so the question is, why is it? Why do you need both? Because if the Torah taught us only the case of the shifcha, because we would we would think that her daughter is excluded because the the shifcha right has no legal right has no chayas has basically no legal uh, family uh, relationships. Okay, so that, that's you know that's basically what what it says. They have no family relationships, so therefore that daughter can't really be considered like sort of the the actual child or legal child of her biological Jewish father. So therefore, she wouldn't be considered to be the legal sister of her of her biological brother. But with the case of Obed Kochavim, the Eat La Chayas, right, who does have, you know, legal sort of like a legal family uh, uh, relationships, okay? In other words, that we do consider children of idolaters to be sort of uh, related, uh, you know, in a halachic status to their family me- measures. Am I low? So then you would say, okay, that daughter wouldn't be excluded, okay? And so that's why you need another, pa- so therefore you need uh, that that uh, that a- a- additional pasuk to teach that, that case is also excluded. Okay? And if the Torah only taught us the case of the idolatress, we would think that that daughter was excluded because the idolater is not subject to the commandments of, uh, of the Torah. And so therefore, that daughter of the idolatress sort of is its own category, right? But that wouldn't and wouldn't. And because they're not, they don't have to do the mitzvot or sort of we don't expect, they're, they're not chayim in any mitzvot. We don't have the category of erva on them, right? Erva of your sister, of a shivcha, but a shivcha, right? We know We know that these non-Jewish slaves actually did have to keep some of the mitzvot while they were living in a Jewish household, and therefore, right? We, you know, amai lo. So therefore, we wouldn't necessarily exclude it based on the idolatrous pasuk because they are shaykh in mitzvot, and so therefore, you need that extra pasuk uh, to, you know, to to teach it to them. And so therefore the Gemara concludes three So you needed both of these sort of like exclusionary, uh, you needed both of these verses. So once Rabbi Yossi has basically showed the need for both of these verses, right, to exclude the category of the slave woman and the idolatress's uh, daughters from the from the prohibition of your sister, the Gemara then says for Rabbanan, according to the rabbis, Ashkechin and Shifcha, right? We have a source for excluding basically the daughter of a Shifcha. So where do we get the source for the idolatrous? So if you want, you could say that you could learn it from the same source as the shivcha. 
right? What would you say back? You would say that these two cases definitely require each of their own separate verses, as Rabbi Yossi, as we basically just explained. So now the Gemara is going to have rabbi sources. I'm a Rabbi Yochan, I'm Shun Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai. So Rabbi Yochanan said the name Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, Amar Kra, Ki Yasir et bin Chameacharai. So here they quote a pasuk um, in um, uh, Devarim, sorry, in Devarim chapter 7, verse 4, which basically says, um, For he will turn your son away from me and will serve other gods. Okay. Binayach mi Israeli karu benayach. And so from here we get that your son who comes from a Jewish woman is called your son. But your son who comes from an I from an obedet kochabim from an idolatrous is not your son. Rather, he is considered to be her son. So again, we basically have this ultimate conclusion, sort of like this matrilineal descent piece, that that son or daughter of the idolatrous is not going to be considered or won't be identified by the Jewish father, but instead will only be identified by the um, by the non uh, by the non Jewish mother. And then, uh, you know, and then the Gemara goes on a little bit more um, to, to, you know, to uh, to explain this. So I, I think what's interesting to me is, is that within this whole uh, section, and I, I don't really have a good answer to this, is that so the Gemara wants to exclude them from the prohibition of your sister, basically, and say, like, these laws of Erva don't apply to them. But I don't see where the Gemara, like, I don't believe that that actually could have been how they lived. So I can't figure out, like, sort of where do they put that back in? And that's this Gemara was very, very puzzling to me. Like, I almost had to read it a few times. I was like, where's the Gemara actually going with this? And I still can't figure out where the Gemara actually went with this. <laughs> I don't know, Anne, if you have like a better idea of, of what of what exactly they're trying to do here. Like, I think wait, can I ask you to what's comment, the They're making a comment for sure about the status of these types of children from the Shivcha and the idolatrous. But like, what's its impact on Erva? It, it's like they don't sort of resolve it here. So my question throughout this discussion was actually the question of, you know, how practical was this, right? We have seen in several Masechot, we've seen the issues of, you know, real-life interaction with non-Jews. And, it you know, the moment you have Jews and non-Jews and real-life interaction between them, so I imagine that this actually did happen, at least on occasion, that there would be, you know, coupling between Jews and non-Jews. And so then my question was, right, like, so are they addressing this in a practical kind of way? Or are they addressing this in a let's explore the possibilities kind of way, right? As a as a probe. And then if it's the latter, then the fact that the resolution is not so clear doesn't bother me as much because it's kind of like a we'll explore this, but we don't really take it serious. Not that we don't take it seriously. I shouldn't say it that way. Meaning that we're not concerned about the real practicality of it. However, I kind of thought that they were dealing with it in a practical way. And then that doesn't help anymore. And we're just puzzled. Well, well, again, I'm also more puzzled because like the Shniot was such an interesting passage, you know, from yesterday, but like all this level of secondary Erva, sorry, two Dapim ago, where they add this whole other layer of other relations that are completely not allowed. And then you have this like bizarre category of the Shivcha and the, I, like, again, I think you're right. Like these weren't common relations. So I think that's maybe why they didn't need to go out of their way to say that like, 
yeah, but you wouldn't really do that anyways. I just think it's striking to me. Like, I, I reread the page. I just don't see it here. I don't know if it's going to come up again later, but it's like they're really going out of their way to talk about how they're not excluded, how they're excluded. It's not really considered to be like a, a relative, but like, okay, but like, what does that mean? And they don't go as far to say well, that, that the moment they're not okay. si- right, right. I hear the question, right? Because the moment they're not considered to be like a relative, you would think it's no issue at all, but they don't spell that out. So then do they mean it? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm going to carry on, I think, because sometimes that's how the duff works, right? We're left with these puzzlements. And unfortunately, we don't have all the answers. Um, here we have at the very bottom of Ahmed Aleph and going well onto Ahmed Bet, not that long onto Ahmed Bet, but it goes onto Ahmed Bet. We have a new Mishnah, and it's a fairly long Mishnah. Guess what? With complicated cases. Okay, so here we have two sisters and one man who betrothes one of them, right? Meaning he does kiddushin, which means that this woman whom he has. He is designating one woman to be the person that he is going to eventually marry. And that betrothal, as we've discussed plenty of times, is a serious enough commitment or connection between the two of them that uh, to for her to go free, so to speak, without con- continuing to marriage with him uh, would require a get, would require a bill of divorcement. But here's the kicker. He doesn't know which of them he uh, he betrothed. Now, this could be a case, just, you know, to flesh it out, right? It could be a case of, you know, the Rachel and Leah, where they kind of trick Yaakov into not knowing which one is which, right? It's not that they looked identical, it's that they are veiled, and he assumes that he's with Rachel, but really he's with Leah, and da-da-da-da, that's possible. Or you could have identical twins, or you could have a man being drunk, and he doesn't know which end is up, meaning we can come up with scenarios as, as bizarre as it sounds, like how could it be that he doesn't know which of the two sisters he he got himself betrothed to? Um, it's not that strange. And then if you think about a world where people didn't even necessarily know each other that well in advance and siblings have the capacity to look alike, you know, it's not so crazy, even though it's kind of pretty crazy. So, she doesn't know which one he betrothed. So then he's, the, the conclusion here is, you should divorce both of them because either he's going to end up married to the right one or he's going to end up in an unriot situation, you know, an illicit relationship with the wrong one. And since he can't be sure enough to know which is which, he's got to divorce them both. The practical implications of this, of course, for the women going forward, then their divorcees, as you know, as it would be relevant for things like ketubah money, it might be relevant for things like marrying a Kohen, you know, and Again, maybe one of them really is not very happy about this. She thought she was getting married. So what happens? What happens if he, instead of giving them bills of divorcement, he dies and he has a brother, but just one brother. What's that one brother going to do? The brother is going to do chalitza for each of the two women. Right, he cannot do yibum because again, the question is which one was the right one to do yibum. So chalitza ends up being this like the so let's let's cover ourselves the backup plan to make sure that you know anybody who needed chalitza got it, and somebody who didn't need it, then I, I think technically it counts for nothing. Meaning that it's not even a real chalitza, but it doesn't matter. And again, implications for the woman, you know, going forward is can she marry a kohen or kohen gut? Whatever the, the status issues are real. Um, okay, 
now let's go let's make it let's take this scenario which oh, you know is kind of messy but it's also i think pretty clear what's going on here not to him but to everybody else hayulo shnaim now what happens if this man has two brothers instead of just one brother so then the conclusion is that one of these brothers will do chalitza with one of the sisters and not yibum at all and and the other brother will do yibum if he wants if she wants everybody agrees right um because what that means then is oof let's see if we can say this right so what that means is that the the brother who does chalitza is let's say he she's the one who really was the one who was betrothed well then she's got chalitza and that's fine right and the one who does yibum either it's the one who needed the yibum or it's one who is not connected at all in which case it's just another brother marrying another sister like which could happen right two brothers marrying two sisters without there being a problem of of ancient ach right that's why it works out okay um either he's doing the yibum correctly or it's ancient ach or, or I'm sorry, either he's doing the evil correctly or it's just random people getting married and they happen to have been siblings to people, other people who are married. And then the Chalitza one, again, either it's nothing or it's um, meaning because she was not the person who he betrothed to begin with or it's Chalitza and then that counts. So, Kadmu Vikansu. And what happens if the person does, ye, the one brother does Yibum, right? A, um, meaning Right, he they don't want to do chalitza. He does yibum, and now what happens? They the kansu they get married. The two brothers marry the two sisters, right? Independent of being told what to do, right? They just do it, um, and there's no chalitza, so the court is not going to make them separate. Meaning, even though there shouldn't have been two cases of yibum there, one should have been chalitza to make to kind of mitigate against the other. Um, it works out, you know, it's considered acceptable, right? Because then one of them, again, one of them, it could have really been Yibum, and the other one is just random people getting married. So it works out that way as well. And that's, it says, in Motzi, Mi Adam, you can leave them married. Um, okay, the Mishnah continues. You want a lot of cases. Let's now talk about Shnayim Shikiju Shteachayot. You have two men. They do not have a connection. The two men betroth two sisters. Uh, let's do it this way. Um, like Ruvain and Zachariah betrothed Rachel, Rachel and Leah, meaning Ruvain and Zachariah have nothing to do with each other, and Rachel and Leah are obviously sisters. And neither of the men, really, come on, men, neither of the men know which one each of them betrothed. Both of these men have to give two divorces, two bills of divorcement to the two sisters, right, to kind of to cover themselves for the same reason that the one man needed to do with the two sisters. So far, it's the same case, just twice. Meitu, what if they both died? And they each have a brother. And likewise, again, it's just the, the same case, just built double, so to speak, so that both brothers, the both men's brothers, individual brothers, need to do chalitza for both of the women. Fine, so far. Now, let's get the complicated case. <laughs> Don't think it's going to be two and two. No. One of these men had one, has one, 
had one brother, and one of these men had two brothers. So the brother, the one, the single brother of the one man, gives does chalitza for both sisters. And then the one that has two brothers, it's the same case as above. So basically, anytime there's just the one brother, that's a that's the same case that we saw before also, um, if he dies and there's just the one brother. If they did get married, meaning if both of those brothers did marry both of those sisters, again, the court's not going to separate them. Now what happens when you have two brothers apiece to each of the men who betrothed each of these women. So then, so again, we might think that this is just going to be, again, that one does Chalita and one does Yibum, but for, for both of the women. But that doesn't work, right? Because, well, I, you, I guess you'd have to line it up, right? Let's see how it lines up. Each man, one of, one of the brothers... How do we say this? Each man has one brother who needs to do chalitza. So that of the two brothers apiece, one of those brothers does chalitza. This is actually said more succinctly than I was going to try to thumb for it through before reading it. Right? Here, here's how it goes, right? Each one of the each of the men has one, has two brothers, one of whom does chalitza to one woman, and the other does chalitza to the other woman. And the other brother does yibum with the chalitza woman from the other man's brother. Okay, um, again, a chart will help, right? But the idea is that the, each woman will get one chalitza and one yibum case, meaning so that they'll get chalitza from the brother of one of the men and yibum from the brother of the other man, and that will be for both women. Okay, again, it's messy, but you can pull out the, the strands of this, and it actually becomes a pretty clear case. Now, right, they can't both get married to both of them. That's not going to work. So what happens? So if both of, if the two brothers did chalitza with the two, um, with the two betrothed women, and they do this again, before there's any court telling them what to do. And then lo then the two brothers of the second man cannot do yibum. Rather, you end up with a situation of like two men with one with the one woman that is going to be one does chalitza and one does yibum. And if they did get married, instead of doing chalitza, fine, the court's not going to separate them. But this is again that will only be for one of these two women because the other woman will have just had chalitza from both from two brothers on one woman. Okay, um, the goal here, and I think that perhaps this mission of more than anything else we've seen spells it out. The goal here is to make sure that on the one hand, the Leverite issue is attended to, right, in terms of whether it's going to be Yibum or Chalitza. And on the other hand, we're going to make sure that there's no relationship between the wrong people, right? Because that's the whole point, that this, betroth this betrothal went wrong if the man doesn't remember which one is supposed to be married to, you can't just um, say, okay, randomly, we'll go with you, right? Because then either he's got the right wife and that's fine, the right betrothed woman, and that's fine, or he's in a prohibited relationship. It's not, It's you can't just whitewash it away. So all of the the fallout, all of the ramifications for 
the brothers going forward are working to make sure that the prohibited dynamic never happens and that in any case the the brother who has died his name is preserved and the the woman is not in a situation of arayot and the worst scenario that can happen here and it's pretty it's not it's not simple right is that the woman would be unnecessarily get the name of a divorcee or a chalutza right that one of the women didn't have this at all right if there's two sisters in that case right so then she didn't have she shouldn't have had chalitza she shouldn't have had uh she shouldn't have had a divorce and now she goes forward with this name of being a divorcee or a chalutza but nonetheless everybody is protected from the concern of um of of arayot the obvious question and i'm sure you're all thinking this is why doesn't the woman just come forward and say she's the one who is betrothed i think it's actually a good question i think that in nowadays maybe we would if this were there would be some kind of system for the court to actually probe that through um i i don't know yet i I don't know we're gonna we're gonna see more in the gemara to see how you know how much is going to be handled. I will note that the first line of the Gemara here, and I do think it's an important one, is Shmamina Kiddushin She'en Mesurin Havu Kiddushin. Meaning this claim, right, that marriage, that it takes marriage to need a divorce, and we keep saying, no, betrothal also counts. This is, you know, front and, front and center here. But again, the man doesn't know which woman he's betrothed. It never says that the woman doesn't know that she herself was the one betrothed. That's my I mean, puzzle the Gemara talks about this a little bit. They try to come up with a scenario. You know, they read it carefully. That it, they look at very careful at the language of the Mishnah, and they try to say it was like at the time of the Kedushin it was known, but later on it got mixed up. I mean, I just yeah, but I, yeah, I agree. This whole staff is puzzling. I don't understand. I mean, the, the two men with the two yeah I, yeah. I don't understand the discussion I presented. This Mishnah is also totally bizarre. How could you not know? I mean, again, the, the scenario they come up with is that there was a Shalia who was sent to, you know, these, you know, to the two women to do the Kedushin and there was some type of confusion. It just doesn't make sense to me. Like, how could you really not know who the Kedushin was done to? I feel like when there's two men and two women, I understand how people could be confused. I think they shouldn't be, but fine. Okay, whatever. But if it's just one man, then only one of the women is, be- I don't know. I don't know. It's a good, like, uh, we can have a soap opera of the confusion here. All right. I, I'm just going to say it. This stuff puzzles me. <laughs> 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 like, no, no discussion here makes sense to me. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Bring us, review us on all nature podcasts. Thank you to our Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hodron website. Let us know what you thought about the stuff on our Talking Town Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.